Good evening. Good to be with you once again in the worship of our great God and Savior. Please turn with me in God's holy word to the Old Testament prophet of Jonah, Jonah chapter 1. Our text will be from verses 11 through 16, but we're going to begin our reading at the beginning of the chapter. Jonah chapter 1. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, that is the son of my faithfulness, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. But Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish. So he paid the fare and went down into it to go with them to Tarshish, away from the presence of the Lord. But the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea, and there was a mighty tempest on the sea, so that the ship threatened to break up. Then the mariners were afraid, and each cried out to his God. And they hurled the cargo that was in the ship into the sea to lighten it for them. But Jonah had gone down into the innermost part of the ship and had lain down and was fast asleep. So the captain came and said to him, What do you mean, you sleeper? Arise, call out to your God. Perhaps the God will give a thought to us that we may not perish. And they said to one another, Come, let us cast lots, that we may know on whose account this evil has come upon us. So they cast lots, and the lot fell on Jonah. Then they said to him, Tell us on whose account this evil has come upon us. What is your occupation, and where do you come from? What is your country, and of what people are you? And he said to them, I am a Hebrew, and I fear the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. Then the men were exceedingly afraid and said to him, What is this that you have done? For the men knew that he was fleeing from the presence of the Lord, because he had told them. Then they said to him, What shall we do to you, that the sea may quiet down for us? For the sea grew more and more tempestuous. And he said to them, Pick me up and hurl me into the sea. Then the sea will quiet down for you. For I know it's because of me that this great tempest has come upon you. Nevertheless, the men rode hard to get back to dry land. But they could not. For the sea grew more and more tempestuous against them. Therefore they called out to Yahweh, O Yahweh, let us not perish for this man's life, and lay not on us innocent blood. For you, O Lord, have done as it pleased you. So they picked up Jonah and hurled him into the sea, and the sea ceased from its raging. Then the men feared the Lord exceedingly, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. Amen. Let us pray. 
O Lord our God, as a servant looks to the hand of his master and his maids to the mistress, so our eyes look to you till you have mercy upon us. Have mercy upon us, O God. Shower us with your grace. Show us your loving steadfastness again this, this night. And Father, may we see our Lord Jesus. May we behold him, the one who is the delight of your soul. And cause him to be that to us as well this night as we come to your table to feast upon him, the living word. So go with us now, we pray. Bless us with your spirit, rend the heavens, and come down and bring glory to your name. We pray this in our Savior's name. Amen. As you look at the story of Jonah, you see one of the great things of this passage is the storm. The storm upon storms. And we see what the storm reveals. One thing the storm reveals is that there is a God. The second thing that the storm reveals is that it reveals who we are in our inmost being. When great storms come into our lives, we start to fear. And we realize that we can't face life alone. We can't handle it. We're not capable of the, dealing with the details of life. And all people, almost all people get religious when there are storms in their lives. They get religious, just like these mariners got religious. They cry out to their gods. But you notice nothing happens Nothing happens. They don't receive help. In fact, as the narrator tells us, the storm got more and more tempestuous. Then they wake Jonah and they call for him to call to his God for safety. Now the text doesn't tell us whether or not Jonah did. He probably didn't because we know his spiritual condition at the moment. He was fleeing from the presence of God. And how sad. The only person in the ship, in the world, for the mariners, to give them any hope, any sound counsel, was asleep. And as they looked frantically around for help, Jonah was no good to them. He was powerless in the time of a crisis. Powerless speechless. He had nothing to give them. Now what we learn in our passage this evening, verses 11 through 16, is that all the storms of life, as we see them in this chapter, as we see them in pages of scripture, all the storms of life are precursors to the ultimate storm yet to come. And what we're going to look at this evening is the way to escape the storm. We're going to look at verses 11 through 14 and consider the futility of escaping God's severe mercy. The futility of escaping God's severe mercy. 
When the identity of the culprit was revealed in verse 7 through 10, as well as the deity that was offended, Israel's God, the mariners demanded a solution from Jonah. Their lives were in danger, and increasingly so. The waves were growing. And the scripture tells us, you see the intensity of the storm as you follow the narrative that the sea grew more and more tempestuous. Verse 11. The intensity of the storm was growing, and it was obvious to everyone on board. It was bearing down upon them, and they had run out of options. They threw, they hurled everything over, and what else could they do? And so these mariners were unsure what to do. They didn't know how to appease this deity, this this God of Israel, Yahweh. They knew one thing, that he had it to be appeased. They just weren't certain how he could be. Jonah revealed to them that his God was responsible for the storm. And the reason why his God was angered. They questioned the prophet for guidance as to what punishment Yahweh wanted to administer to Jonah to secure his favor. Notice how they, this question is particularly pointed. In verse 11, what shall we do to you, Jonah? What shall we do to you? What shall we do to you, Jonah, that the sea may quiet down for us? Now their question, it implies some sort of punishment. Some punishment is in order for Jonah because he was fleeing from the wrath or the presence of God. And they even offered to serve as agents for that punishment. Notice what they said. What shall we do? What shall we mariners do to you, Jonah? For their own sake, they had to do something about Jonah. Jonah's flight from God had imperiled their lives. They were about to be destroyed in the sea along with Jonah. And so for their own sake, they had to do something to this prophet of the Lord. And by avoiding his responsibility, Jonah had forced upon these mariners responsibility. They were caught up, as it were, in the conflict which was not of their making. And this is really the nature of sin, isn't it? This is what sin does. Sin is never private. Sin, our sin, our rebellion against God will always inevitably draw in others and endanger the lives around us. We see this so obviously in families, don't we? The unfaithfulness of a spouse, for instance, has devastating and often immediate effect upon the extended families, and often for generations. We see this so clearly in King David's family. His one-time lustful look at Bathsheba brought about an avalanche of troubles in his household for generations. 
We see this in the life of Eli in the early days of Samuel. We not only endanger our own lives by sin, we also threaten the lives of around, around us. And so the mariners, they understood this. They recognized that their own lives were endangered. And they knew now that Jonah's God was responsible for this intense storm. And so they asked Jonah, Jonah, what shall we do to you? What shall we do to you? So that the sea may quiet down. Now Jonah's response to the mariners was shocking. He said, pick me up and hurl me into the sea, and the sea will settle down. Now this is an extraordinary suggestion. Wouldn't you think? Throw me into the sea. What good would that do? It seems far too drastic of measures. Wasn't there any other way? Wasn't there another possibility? What can we do to appease your God, Yahweh? How did Jonah ever come up with this recommendation anyway? Have you thought of that? Why? What would make Jonah give such a suggestion? How did he know that this was the solution to the raging sea? How did Jonah know that his death would be the solution to the raging sea and to their survival, their life? There's only one answer. There can only be one answer. God told him. You see, when Jonah's sin was exposed earlier, God's silence was ended. Up to that point, we don't hear a word of God. Matter of fact, if you look tonight or this week and you compare the book of Jonah to other minor prophets, you will notice something very striking. That in the other prophets, they'll begin with, like, turn the page to Micah, the word of the Lord came to Micah. And then he speaks the word of God. He prophesies. Here we have the word of God coming to Jonah and then silence silence. But now that Jonah, his sin was exposed, Jonah spoke as a prophet once again. The man whose witness had been silenced by his secret sin now began to speak. He was a prophet of God once again. He became the mouthpiece of God to this crew on the brink of disaster. Pick me up, he said, and hurl me into the sea. Then the sea will quiet down. It seems unconscionable. They too recognize that Jonah was a culprit. They say as much. But to throw him over the board, that seems just too extreme. And for some reason, he puts the responsibility for doing that on these poor, distraught mariners. Did you notice that as well? Pick me up and you hurl me into the sea, he says. Now, what hindered Jonah from just jumping overboard? Couldn't he do that? Couldn't he just throw himself, as it were, into the sea? But he says, pick me up. 
Why was this awful responsibility given to the mariners of throwing him overboard? Now here we need to recognize that Jonah's suggestion was ultimately God's word. He was the prophet of God. He was the mouthpiece of God. And so by commanding the sailors to hurl Jonah overboard, God was up to something. God was about to do something. He was not just dealing with with Jonah. He was dealing with these mariners. And they were meant to recognize that it was from God and from no, no other. Jonah was not to be the source of their salvation. Their salvation was to come from God. It was Israel's God, Yahweh, who would save them in just the same way that God had declared through Jonah how they would be saved. And by acting according to God's word then, they would obtain salvation. Now this is not as easily done as heard, especially in this this situation. Wasn't there another way, some other way, in which they could spare both their life and the life of Jonah? quite, Quite naturally, they were reluctant to throw Jonah overboard. It was something they had never thought of. And they weren't about to do it. How do we know? Well, look at verse 13. Nevertheless, so Jonah says, pick me up, hurl me into the sea. Verse 13, nevertheless, the men rode hard to get back to dry land. They rode hard, but all their efforts failed. The harder they tried, the more tempestuous the sea became. But notice, Back in verse 11, we have this editorial note by the author that the sea grew more and more tempestuous. And then, in verse 13, notice the same language. They tried hard to row back to the land, but they could not, for the sea grew more and more tempestuous. What are the last two words? Against them against them. It was against them. You see, God had spoken the word, hurled Jonah overboard, but they didn't. They tried to get back to land. They thought that their plan was a better plan. That would bring safety to all. But that was not God's plan, you see. And it became obvious then to the mariners that Jonah's God was not in favor of their chosen method with dealing with Jonah's predicament. Though the sailors desired to spare Jonah's life, it seemed admirable, it sounded good, but it wasn't safe. It wasn't safe. If Jonah's word was indeed the word of the living God, the one who is sovereign over the sea and over all things, the dry land, then what they were doing was in direct conflict to the living God of Israel. The life of the man who spoke the word of God must be given up if the crew would be saved. There's only one solution 
And that's the way it's always. One solution. Only one way of salvation. It is God's way. All human attempts for salvation, futile. God's way always brings life. And they had finally come to recognize that very thing. Look at verse 13. These are four words in our English translation, which are really the turning point, we might say, of the mariner's story. Verse 13. Nevertheless, the men rowed hard to get back to dry land, but they could not. They could not get through the storm of God's judgment on their own, no matter how hard they tried. And they tried hard. They rowed and rowed, but they could not get back to dry land. They could not. Now I wonder, my dear friends, if you have tried this. If you have come to recognize this very thing in your own life. You've tried to live your own life apart from the true and living God, the only God, the God of Israel. Apart from Him. Apart from His Word. Apart from bending your knee to Him. Apart from laying down your arms and submitting to the Lord of glory and surrendering your life to the Lord Jesus Christ. The more you try, the Scriptures tell us, the more you fail, the more difficult it becomes. You go down, 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 down. In fact, the more you try, the deeper you dig. And what Scripture tells us is that you'll be digging your own grave. You'll be digging your own grave. And it's interesting to know the author's choice of words here. In verse 13... If you have the ESV, English Standard Version, you'll notice that there's a little footnote, number two, after the phrase, nevertheless the men rode hard. Now if you carry your eye to the bottom of that page, you'll read in the second footnote in the Hebrew, the men dug in. As in, they dug in their oars into the sea to make it back to dry land. That's what they did. Now, the verb to dig is not usually used when you're in the water. But here it's used. It's literally to dig. It's a rather unusual idiom to use for rowing a ship. But if you turn over in your Bibles just two pages, in Amos chapter 9, verse 2, we see the exact same word. And it refers to something else. And this is where the holy narrator wants us, wants us to understand. In chapter 9, verse 2. Strike the capitals until the thresholds shake and shatter them on the heads of all the peoples. And those who are on the left of them I will kill with the sword. Not one of them shall flee away. Not one of them shall escape. And then here it is. If they dig into Sheol, from there shall my hand take them. 
If they dig into Sheol, that's the word here. Do you grasp what the author is saying to us by using this word here? Though the mariners are attempting to row back to shore, to dry land, in reality they are digging their own graves. Sheol, the place of the dead. The Old Testament word for the New Testament word, Hades, the place of the dead. Finally, these mariners come to the understanding that their attempts at living life their own way is foolish. Trying to escape the wrath and judgment on your own is futility. Utterly futile. It might sound courageous, but it's actually very foolish. And that's what the mariners discover. They thought that they would do it their own way, but they had finally come to discover by the Spirit of the living God that their way was the way of death, Sheol. My dear friends, do you hear the word of the prophet? It's very clear to us. He is underscoring this for us. They were digging their own graves. And if you will live your life for yourself, no matter how you explain it, if you live according to your own design, for your own pleasures, you are digging your own grave. And don't be surprised if the storms of life will intensify in response to dig your own grave because God is speaking. And that's what happened here. The storm intensified. It became more and more tempestuous until they discovered that they could not do it their own way. They understood the futility of escaping God's severe mercy in the storm. Secondly, we see in verses 14 through 16 the relenting wrath of God's relentless mercy. The relenting wrath of God's relentless mercy. So now what do they do? What must they do for the sea to quiet down? How could they possibly escape the wrath of God as they saw it in the sea? Well, there's only one way. There's only one way to escape death. Only one possible way of salvation. Verse 14, therefore, conclusion, they called out to the Lord, Yahweh. Now, this is a remarkable turn of events. Look at back at verse 5. Back in verse 5, when the storm of God's judgment first came about, notice how they called. To each cried out to his God, a pantheon of gods. All these mariners were from different places of the Mediterranean, and they all called to their gods, the God of the storm, the God of the sea, the God of sunshine, the God of dry land. Now, collectively, as a congregation, just like you and I did 
today. We, they cried out to Israel's God, Yahweh. Oh Lord, they cried, let us not perish for this man's life and lay not on us innocent blood, but you, O oh Lord, have done as it pleased you. What a remarkable prayer. Remarkable. They prayed to the Hebrew God. The only true and living God, the God of the ocean, the God of the sea, the God who made all things, the sovereign over the ends of the earth. They're praying to him and they're pleading that they won't perish on account of this man Jonah. And they ask that they would be kept, held back from innocent blood. Not implying that Jonah is innocent. They're concerned that if they cast them over, then they themselves would be held accountable for his death, homicide. And then they make this remarkable confession, remarkable confession. They say, oh, for you, O oh Lord, have done as it pleased you. They've come to acknowledge that Israel's God indeed is the sovereign one the ruler over all things, that he's greater than all the gods of the nations. That he is the only true God, the living God. And you remember when the people of Israel came out of Egypt, out of bondage in Exodus, that when they sang the song of Moses in Exodus 15, that's what they sang about Israel's God, the God of the covenant. They said, who is a God like you among the gods? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in glory, working wonders? Because that's what God did. He declared his majesty over the God of the Nile, the deity of Pharaoh himself, the God of futility seen in the frogs, and on and on and on. So that in, in Exodus 12, 12, God shows himself to be the great God over all gods as they were cast down under his mighty hand. And this is what these mariners had come to understand as well. In fact, this phrase that we read here, O Lord, you have done it as it pleased you. Is used three times in the Old Testament, and they all underscore the same thing. I know the Lord is great, that the Lord is greater than all gods. The Lord does whatever he pleases. This is the God of the heavens and the earth. The depths of the sea are his. Now, do you hear what the mariners are confessing? They're confessing that all their gods are worthless, that they can't help but that only the God of Israel, Jonah's God, is the one who is worthy of worship and praise. And not only worship, but he's the one who can quiet the waves, silence the sea. It's a remarkable confession of faith in Israel's God. They come to recognize that Jonah's God was the only true God. And that Jonah's word was, in fact, the word of the living God. The only way of salvation. The only way of salvation. And having made their petition to, God, to Yahweh, the crew now goes back 
to its somber task. According to the word of the Lord, they hurl Jonah into the sea. And notice how the sea responds immediately. The word tells us it ceased from its raging, just as Jonah had predicted. Jonah might be a disobedient prophet, but nevertheless a true prophet. Jonah had predicted in verse 12 what was going to come. And the scriptures tell us that when a prophet of God, or when a a test for a prophet of God is when he proclaims the word, he predicts the outcome of that word, and then it actually happens, it is evidence that Yahweh, the God of Israel, is at work. And indeed he was. And this is the third time now in this chapter that the word hurl is used. And the author again wants to make it abundantly clear to us that the hurling of the mariners recalls what happened before. They want us to connect the hurling with the wind that the Lord sent upon the sea and ultimately to communicate to the mariners that the acting on God's behalf in this matter. That when God hurled the winds, so they now were acting on God's behalf. There's only one thing, and only one thing, that would appease God's wrath, as symbolized in the raging sea. It was the sacrifice of one man. God's storm ended when Jonah was thrown overboard and he was sacrificed so that the ship's crew might be saved. What a story. Isn't it a great narrative? A glorious narrative? And do you know why? Because this narrative directs us to an infinitely greater story that concerns all of us, not just the mariners, but you and I as well. It's the story of the way of escape. Escape from the wrath of God, which surely will come on account of our sins. Because we're no different than Jonah, who here could raise their hand and Say, I've never disobeyed the word of the living God. Is there anyone here? And if you don't raise your hand, that means you're all under, by nature, the judgment of God. When the mariners realized that they could not beat the storm, no matter how desperately they tried, they turned in their desperation to what God had said through his prophet, and they staked their lives on the sacrifice of one man, Jonah. Can you imagine what they are doing? Here was a man who was guilty. Here was a man who had disobeyed God, who was fleeing from the presence of God. They had to believe his word, that he was the prophet of the living God. And hurl him, throw him over to his death so that they might be saved. As Jonah offered himself up as a sacrifice to appease the raging storm. 
The Holy Spirit is teaching us that Jesus Christ did that to save you from the raging storm of God's righteous judgment against you. But we need to know that there's a storm. We need to know that there's the wrath of God against sin for any of this to make sense. But Christ knew, and you need to know, cast out by man, forsaken by his heavenly Father, Christ offered himself as the sacrifice because he knew that that sacrifice and only that sacrifice would appease God's wrath. Just as Jonah did not take his own life by throwing himself overboard, so Jesus did not take his own life. He was crucified. As the sailors lifted up Jonah and hurled them over to his death, so wicked men, the scriptures tell us, lifted up the Lord of glory on the tree, giving him over to death on the cross. But it was according, Acts 2, according to the will and the word of the Lord, Isaiah 53, to crush him. To crush him. As the mariner, mariners confessed, for you, O Lord, have done it as it pleased you. And this was the passage that Peter preached on the day of Pentecost, acknowledging that Jesus was lifted up according to the definite plan and the foreknowledge of God. Do you see it? This is the Old Testament story of God's design to save sinners and to bring them safely to shore. Yes, he was willing to use guilty men like these mariners. They too, by nature, were under God's wrath, Romans 1. But it was God's gracious plan through the sacrifice of a greater than Jonah to save them. And in Christ then they found salvation from the impending wrath of Almighty God. And my friends, this is good news. This is the greatest news. Because of our own sin, our own rebellion, God's judgment has come upon us. There is a mighty tempest on the sea and we're all caught up in it. And there's no exception from the wrath of God. Why? Because there's no one without guilt. No one would raise their hand and say, I am just. I've never sinned. As the scriptures tell us, all of us have sinned against God. And the wonder of the gospel is this. It's the great story of the Christian faith. That all those who are guilty before God God, in his infinite wisdom, in his tender mercies, has designed a way of escape for sinners through the sacrifice of his own son, Jesus Christ. Because it was on the cross that our Lord Jesus Christ was thrown into the storm of God's wrath. It was there that he met the fury of God's wrath full measure, undiluted, as he drank that cup of God's wrath. And through that sacrifice, our sins are atoned. 
So let me ask you, are you saved? Are you saved? I hope all of you can put your hand up. We're in a Presbyterian church, probably wouldn't do that. But that's the question. Are you saved from the wrath to come? Because as long as you think that you can help yourself, as long as you put your trust in yourself, worship yourself, glory yourself, take pleasure in all the things of this world, you will face the wrath of God. But as you see the wonder of Christ Jesus offering himself up on the cross as your propitiation, you will feel that this Savior that Jonah was a type of is worthy of your full devotion. So how should you respond? We'll quickly look at verse 16. Then the men feared the Lord exceedingly. More literally, it reads, Then the men feared with a great fear the Lord, Yahweh. Would Jonah for a minute out of the picture now. The spotlight falls upon the ship's crew. The one might expect that, that all fears would vanish with the storm's departure. It was clear as glass. The opposite is actually the case. The author repeats one more time. Look this up in chapter 1. But he repeats one more time the standard expression of the mariners involving fear, except with one additional word. The men feared with a great fear, Yahweh, Jonah's God, the only true and living God. This fear that the sailors experience at the end of the narrative is so different, though, than the fear that gripped them at the outset of the story. The storm no longer threatens them. God's wrath has been appeased. Yahweh's anger no longer hangs over their head. Their confusion and their sense of helplessness, helplessness has evaporated. What is there left to fear? Nothing but the Lord. The Lord. The mariners were gripped by the end with a profound awe, a wonder at Yahweh's responsiveness to their great need. His willingness to hear them. His willingness to save them. His willingness to be so gracious to sinners. They had never encountered a deity like this before, have you? This is the great God of the heavens and the earth, the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ and our God. And so they delivered to him humble petition. And as a result, they really experienced the fear of God. Awe, reverence. Not cowering and frightened, but awe and wonder. It's the fears we sing in Amazing Grace that cast out all other fears. Because of the amazing love of our God, the sacrifice of the one for the many. And so, notice this fear of the Lord. Not a religiosity. 
No, it is really grateful worship of these mariners. We're going to see these. We're going to celebrate them. As we celebrate the table together as this congregation, what do we have at the end of chapter 1? Another congregation, a brand new congregation of the Lord Jesus Christ, the Old Testament church, all worshiping God. Look what it says. And they offered a sacrifice to Yahweh and made vows. This is their devotion now to Israel's God and their God. Surprise, at least for the reader, because of the mission of Jonah to go to Nineveh, but here at the end of the chapter, we have a bunch of pagans. You know how sailors are, drunken sailors and all the rest. They had come to offer acceptable worship to Israel's God, an unexpected end. But then again, this is just like God, isn't he? Isn't this just like our God? A God who does wondrous things in his infinite wisdom. God, our God, uses human rebellion as an instrument to accomplish his holy purpose. And that's the grand story of salvation. With the close of this first chapter, we have a grand illustration of the words of Isaiah. I was ready to be sought by those who did not ask for me. I was ready to be found by those who did not seek me. Oh, the wonder of the relenting wrath of God's relentless mercy to those who do not ask. Let us pray. Father, as we come to the table We come with great praise and worship to you. For Lord, who is a God like you among the gods? Who is a God so gloriously working wonders? A God who saves those who do not seek him. Father, we thank you for your mysterious and mighty work in all our hearts. And Father, here we are at as the congregation of the Lord Jesus Christ at Redeemer. And we can hardly wait to be at the table of our Lord Jesus Christ in glory. We and all those like us, Jew and Gentile, who you've brought in by faith. Oh, Father, help us to see the wonder of it all in your Son, our Lord Jesus, that he was hurled into your wrath so that we might know your favor and your love. Oh God, we pray this evening that you would use your word to so powerfully convict us, those who yet are trusting in their own resources, to turn from them to the only resource, our Lord Jesus. And Father, may they know that he is the only escape, the ark the great temple, the one in whom we alone find safety from the storm. Oh, Father, you have taught us through your Son that we should never forget the wonderful story of salvation. And so, Lord Jesus, you have instituted this table to that end. 
For you have told us that we ought to do this in remembrance of you. And so we pray now that as our eyes are lifted up to glory, as we see you, Lord Jesus, the resurrected and the risen Savior on the throne of heaven, we pray that you would give us your spirit afresh so that we might again stand in awe and wonder as we give to you our vows, as we worship you, the only true and living God. And so we pray, Father, that you would bless us with your spirit, that you would take these elements that you have set aside for this purpose so that our hearts might turn to Christ, that we might feast upon him, the bread come from heaven. And so satisfy us in him, Lord. Cause all other idols to vanish all worthless gods to disappear. And may our affections be enthralled with you, our God and our Savior, the one, the only one who delivers us from the wrath of God.